welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. Hi, I am Vanessa Paik. I am the founder and director of Australian Community Managers. I run a private community consultancy called PeerSense, and I'm currently studying my PhD at the University of Sydney in AI and online communities. Awesome. For those who might not know you, can you tell a little bit more about kind of what your day-to-day looks like? Absolutely. Um, So I'm here in Australia, as you may have picked up from the accent. Uh, My day-to-day, so I guess I work with a whole bunch of different people. I uh, have a a range of clients through PeerSense who are either folks who are looking to build online communities, who want some support with strategy, governance, engagement, those sort of different things. They might want to build capacity for their teams in learning how to manage communities, how to support and sustain those communities over time. Then through Australian Community Managers, um, that's an organisation here in Australia that's dedicated to supporting those doing the work of community, which is a growing number of people, particularly in the wake of COVID and the pandemic, as we move our workplaces online and everyone is becoming, in in effect, an online community manager. So that organisation creates training and resources and events and different opportunities for those doing that work to, to build themselves professionally, to you know, benefit from a peer support network, all those sort of things. So it's a community of practice for for community practitioners. And uh, my studies and my teaching, so I'm really interested in in the intersection of sort of, you know, automation and uh, algorithms and communities and how those machine intelligences are impacting the human work of community building. And that work means that I do a lot of teaching. I teach community management at the University of Sydney, uh, and I I teach in in other areas as well, so internet governance and and all these sort of things. So my day looks like a combination of working with those different sort of clients, working with my amazing uh, community of community managers here in the Asia Pacific, and, you know, jumping in and teaching some classes and marking some assignments and those sort of things. But um, it's great. I'm really fortunate that literally every single thing I do now, I really love and I um, am able to throw myself into That's awesome. And I have so many follow-up questions related to what you just (laughs) shared. But the kind of first thing that kind of struck me was you were talking about kind of the introduction of AI, machine learning, and community. What are some of, as someone who has expertise in this, what are some of the trends that you're kind of seeing emerge right now? Yeah, it's a really interesting space and it's it's so dynamic, right? It's like all things technology, it's changing constantly. So there's a few things, I guess there's some positive trends and some not so constructive trends, um, but at least people are talking about them and exploring them, which is a good thing. So, you know, look, uh, the a trend that I guess we've seen for some time is continuing, and that is, you know, the trend toward, you know, automating out um, repetitive sort of low effort, what I would call low context tasks. So, you know, things like um, perhaps low effort moderation tasks, um, notifications and reminders, um, onboarding of various kinds, aspects of uh, digital experience or an online community experience or perhaps an online workplace experience that really don't necessarily need the human hand. They don't need deep context. They don't need a lot of, um, you know, subjective or interpretive judgment. And they're happening a lot and often at speed or at scale. So, you know, machines are great at that. They're really, really great. So it's 
the trend is to alleviate that burden and hand those tiles over to machines, providing you know humans can can configure them and set them up um, in a relevant way, and that's terrific. Um, the other big trends, particularly in communities or uh, digital spaces with a lot of scale, so a lot of users, a lot of activity, a lot of stuff happening, you know, are in using machine learning to draw out those insights and to sort and sift that data and come up with new and interesting uh, discoveries, basically. So, and I think that's, that's very fascinating for community managers, particularly if they're working at a big scale. They get to look at this data in new ways. Perhaps they're going to be trends that they didn't really spot because they, you know, they can't they don't see, we don't see the way a machine does, um, patterns and things that might actually be really useful in understanding what's going on in the community, perhaps allowing us to preempt problems before they arise, um, to step in and take advantage of opportunities. You know, if, if users are using the platform in new, in new ways, we can create uh, new opportunities for them to do that or respond to that in certain ways. And there just might be, uh, you know, kind of, a way for us to actually increase the value and the impact of our community by understanding what's going on in a more robust fashion, thanks to machine learning and analytic tools. So those sort of things are some of the trends I'm really excited about. Some of the more problematic ones, which are, you know, are not new either. I guess the 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 use of uh, algorithms to to intervene in these environments. Obviously, you know, an algorithm is a is a fairly simple thing at its core, but uh, it's all in the programming, obviously. So when people are using tools that they may not have built or ha may not have input into setting up or configuring, so let's say I'm using a, a third party social media platform which has its own interests, its own business model, its own algorithmic logics. Those logics and those uh, sets of rules might not really line up with my intentions, my values, my goals, my objectives on that platform and what I want to do with human beings there. So we're seeing some interesting problems and frictions where the tools are programmed to do one thing, um, you know, for their authors, for their algorithmic authors um, that actually don't align very nicely with the things that the human beings actually want to do and, in fact, may problematize or complicate that you know it might be assigning value to content um, based in the eyes of the you know the tool designer uh, which doesn't actually kind of align with the value that the community assigns to that content or the value that the owners or sort of custodians of that community assign so it might be rewarding behavior that they would rather is not rewarded those sort of things so that can actually create some real kind of social and cultural issues within communities it can make it kind of a bit of a you know I've, I've talked to community professionals who feel like they're algorithmic wranglers trying to, trying to get on top of this and understand it because it's all very opaque and sort of just feel like they're chasing that rather than spending their time working on their community or working on their workplace or whatever it is they're, they're actually there to do. They're caught up in trying to understand tech that's outside of their control. Um, and so that, that's unfortunate. So, and obviously all the pro problems that come with that along the lines of algorithmic bias and, and things like that, they're, they're, they're really quite serious and systemic problems. The good news is there's a whole bunch of really smart people thinking about this, talking about this, working to crack this. Yeah. And I'm only going to guess that you kind of assume that as a lot of brands who maybe are using Facebook groups um, and having to deal with some of the biases associated with a Facebook alg algorithm. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it is it is a pretty big problem, you know, and you see, um, and, and to be fair, look, I mean, Facebook is definitely a, a, a big culprit of this. So it's, it's right to call them out. And certainly a lot of people are calling them out. But it's not just Facebook. I think, you know, any any time you, you have these tools and they, you know, their designers, often with very good reason, are trying to design aspects of this system algorithmically that make the, the platform or the tool you know, easier to use, better to use. Um, but again, it just comes down to, you know, kind of the 
the ideas and the interests and the institutions that lie underneath that. So, you know, who, who are they serving? Who is their core customer? Um, and does that really help or hinder the work that you're trying to do there? And sometimes it doesn't make much of a difference, but I have seen in, you know, in a lot of cases, and that's, that's the area my research is focused in, kind of capturing the problems that this creates for the human governance of communities, if those systems aren't, you know, aren't aligned or are actually creating some real sort of antithetical forces in some way. So it's particularly, as I said, you know, it's, it's valuing things that aren't valuable or it's making it more challenging to do the human work of community building. Absolutely. Um, for anyone who might be listening to this, who manages a Facebook community, a Facebook group, um, what are some ways that they can kind of combat that, combat this in a way that is uh, proactive and also bettering the community as a whole? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I'm, so, I'm still working on it, to be honest. Um, look, I, I do think it's really challenging. I mean, look, that to start with, you know, the same the same thing I would tell anyone in any space managing community. You know, consistent, present, sort of attentive community management. So with you know if a tool is less interventionist um, then you know you may be able to spend in some ways less time on the coal face if you're doing doing the work in some sort of consistent manner uh, and you know you've got a fantastic group of founding members and your community is building out in a reliable trusted sort of way um, with with platforms like Facebook you know unfortunately it is a sort of situation where you can't really afford to take your eye off the ball very often so being in the community on a really consistent basis to observe these kind of trends to observe you know algorithmic shifts that might be creating issues and just I guess working all the working all the tools in your community manager toolbox so ensuring that you do have good governance ensuring that it's consistently um, you know modeled reinforced irrespective of what algorithms may or may not be doing Um, you know making sure that you're um, kind of going above and beyond in terms of having a public conversation with your community about why we're here, what matters, what we value, what those core behaviours and activities are, Um, you know, using the tools in such a way that you're able to um, create maximum opportunities for people to do those desired behaviours and activities, rewarding them, you know, publicly uh, and privately potentially as well when those things are happening, regardless of what the tools are doing. So you're kind of consistently and vocally pushing back on any sort of mixed messages uh, from the platform itself. I think that's that's my overarching advice for that situation. And then, the, you know, there is a bunch of sort of more specific tactics that, that you can use as well. That's really, really great advice. Um, and shifting a little bit more high level, what are some of the ways that you can kind of foster a really great culture in a global community, uh, regardless of whether, you know, you're on Facebook groups, you're in in a Slack community, you're in a forum, you know, Discord, whatever it might look like. What are some of the strategies that you're seeing, finding to be the most effective right now? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that so many people are grappling with now, of course, as they've moved their workplaces into the cloud. Um, you know, I get this question a lot from team leaders, CEOs, managers who say, you know, look, my people know how to use digital technology. I've, I've got kind of got the right tools set up, but, and I've thrown everyone online um, full time now, but yeah, it's, you know, nothing's kind of happening. And, you know, I, I'm worried because we seem to have such a great culture and I don't, can we do that online? Can we build a culture online? And of course you can. Um, and some of the same principles and techniques apply you've just got to obviously slightly rethink the modality and how they actually express themselves or articulate it so you know my my advice on the conversation I have when I start talking to these folk is to 
start to actually uncover, you know, what, the, especially if they do believe they had a really strong culture offline, to, let's talk about that. So let's talk about what, why you think that was the case, what made it great, you know, were there... Was there lots of social vibrancy? Were people, um, you know, really freely and openly collaborating? Was there a lot of fun? Was there a playful atmosphere? You know, what about, you know, was there a lot of trust and social capital? What, what about it was unique and special and useful for you as a company? And then we can start to think how, about a, how to graph those things online. Um, but, I mean, one of the high-level things I talk about is Thinking about, you know, whilst it's obviously communities, particularly workplace communities, you know, are going to be multi-platform, you know, you're never going to have one platform that houses literally all of your things. There's always going to be other places and tools. So think of it, think of it a little bit like designing um, not so much a house, but a village. You're designing kind of a workplace village for yourself online. So just as if you were an urban designer and you were thinking, okay, so what do we want people to do in this part of the the place that I'm designing? You know, is it a big retail area? I want them to shop and have energy and be excited. Is it it a green space? Are there parks? Do we want people to relax and feel relaxed? How are we going to achieve that? Is it, you know, a a place for people to, to live and hang out or work? So the different energies and the different architectural designs and the different things that go on there to support those desired behaviours, how do you replicate that online? So you've got to create zones proactively for this sort of stuff. As you build culture, as you build that trust, as you allow for those peer-to-peer relationships to happen, some of that will happen organically, which is great, providing you make it really clear that there's permission for that to happen. And that's another thing people sometimes forget to do. We want this to happen. These tools are yours. We give you agency to use them in ways that are meaningful to you, as well as ways that we may instruct on occasion. But create spaces for that. So if you've only got, you know, I've seen companies have only a couple of very formal um, kind of forensic clinical kind of workspaces where you know, perhaps those leaders want, would love for people to engage a bit more freely and knowledge share and collaborate or hang out or do something social. But those folks don't think they have permission. They don't know they have permission to do that. And it just doesn't, the vibe doesn't really support it. So find a place where you can support that vibe, find a way to support that vibe, Um, you know, create areas for um, slow, you know, kind of slow work where people can just sort of be and hang out and maybe they can do maybe they can work together over a period of time sort of working out loud in situ Um, you know how do you how do you allow people to step up and bring their whole selves and express that through different means in these digital places that you're crafting and convening Um, just think about the energy and the tone and the atmosphere of the technology I know that seems a bit weird to say maybe Um, but you know some of these tools are do have a particular sort of sensibility to them from their, from a user experience point of view. So, you know, it doesn't support the kind of behaviours you're hoping to cultivate that you believe are going to help produce and shape this culture over time. And then, as I said earlier, stepping out of the way and giving people freedom and permission to do this sort of work. People, one of the most common reasons that people don't engage in a community and the research bears this out is Often it seems so simple because they don't really, they don't know what to do and no one sort of told them to do it or said they can. Um, you know, I've, I've worked on communities where there's been an engagement problem and you've gone and talked to the users and then they're like, oh, no, I'd love to use it, but I didn't really know we could do that. Or is that allowed? Or I just didn't really know where to put that. I wanted to share that thing, but there didn't seem to be a place for it. So create the places, make it clear you have permission, and then broadly coming back to, what makes a community a community? Because communities are, you know, powerful cultural incubators. Thinking about, you know, membership, belonging, trust, social capital, 
influence and agency do people have the ability to make this space their own and to use these tools in the way that they can rather than taking that sort of prescriptive voluntold you know we're going to have our mandatory fun at the end of the week we're going to have our mandatory you know friday zoom drinks and everyone's expected to attend that's not going to build you culture you know that's invariably going to exclude some people um, people that might have families or maybe they don't drink and they're not comfortable because of the situation the whole bunch of reasons that model doesn't exactly work um so you've got to create you've got to create the ability for meaningful shared connect shared emotional connection to happen all the time rather than sort of bolting it on to work quote unquote yeah I love that um analogy of a village and really being thoughtful about creating those different zones for uh members of the community or members whether that's external or internal to you know gather for different types of um activities uh so to speak one thing that kind of came up a little bit is like you kind of mentioned like Zoom happy hours aren't exactly the best way to go about that. And I almost would think of that a little bit in the same regard as like Zoom happy hours are the same thing as like having the office ping pong table. Like it's not really yep. the culture. Um, do you have examples is, yeah. of teams or companies that have really gotten the collaborative nature right remotely? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there's a few. I mean, I think um, the team at Asana do this really well. Um, and so they, they, you know, they've really kind of taken on this, that, that notion of, you know, everything is an opportunity to, everything is relationship centric, right? I think that's what it kind of boils down to, you know, rather than it being, you know, here's where we work and we're not bringing our full selves and we're expected to sort of fit into a narrow box and do narrow tasks and check boxes and, hey, now we can be, we can relax and now you're expected to bring your party face. You know? um, they're their whole selves all the time. And so they're not afraid of infusing ordinary work activities, you know, meetings, gatherings, project collaboration with play, with opportunities for self-disclosure, with opportunities for relationship building. And the work gets done, of course, and it actually gets done, you know, faster, more efficiently, more compellingly. Um, people are free to be more creative. You know, there's all that modelling and, and, and showing off of, you know, how you can bring all of those things to your, your digital workspace. And so it's not that they have, a, you know, a week of exhausting meetings or, or work that they're working on and feel really disconnected and then go, oh, now I'm going to show up to the social thing. Oh, my gosh, I roll. Um, you know, it's, it's there all the time. So it's a pervasive part of their culture. And so, you know, whether it's, yeah, little creative icebreakers, I just, I think the word play comes to mind a lot with, with the, those teams, you know, and I think they're doing a wonderful job of making even sometimes quite, you know, dry or uh, sort of arbitrary things that have to happen in a work environment that everyone's a little bit bored by. They infuse them with fun. They make it an opportunity to get to know each other better, to understand each other better, to enhance collaboration, to enhance that shared emotional connection, which will see you working better as a team and will allow you to figure out to do that shared sense making that helps you craft a culture together because culture is co-created, right? It's not a manager or a leader saying, this is the culture, here are our values, go do the culture. No, but I think a lot of people tend to perhaps approach it like that in the early stages. It's, of course, the culture is the actual lived experience that manifests in reality, um, regardless of what's on a wall or what a, what a leader may say. So allowing people to co-create that culture in their own way, in their own time, through their ordinary everyday work activities, I think is really pivotal. Absolutely. One of the biggest objections that we're still hearing to this day is 
how hard it is to build culture across multiple time zones. What are some ways that companies can, you are extremely global and maybe they have team members in the US, Australia, India, Europe, and you know, Chile or somewhere else all over the world. Where are some of the ways that they can, you can still kind of foster that scene, that same like sense of community within the workplace even when you have people who might never, who might be like 10 times on supply. Yeah, that is such a good question, right? And it is it is a really persistent problem. And one of the benefits of our newly fully dispersed working lives is exactly that. We've got people everywhere. So asynchronousness is the answer um, or a big part of the answer. So as you said, Jess, you know, even now I talk to clients and folks out there who, who sort of, feel this pressure to, you know, when they think about working online together, it's about co-presence. It's about, okay, so we're all going to get on a Zoom at the same time. How do we align schedules? We've got to make that happen. It's really important. And sure, look, those synchronous moments have a different kind of value and they are important if you can achieve them. They're, not, not, they're useful if you can achieve them, but they're not central and they're not um, indispensable, right? You can build culture and you can do all of this work without synchronicity if you must I know and have worked with teams that are exactly in this position they have never had a global office they have a fully dispersed time zone team certainly you know individuals in similar time zones do connect synchronously but never as a unit never as a cohort have they ever connected synchronously online or offline and they have strong cultures and great relationships and it's they have created those zones we talked about for working out loud, for asynchronous community building, so that anyone, anytime, whenever it's relevant, can go into those spaces and contribute. So they could post about what they're working on. They could ask a question. They could talk about their day, you know, whatever the nature of the zone is. And then, you know, I log on and they've gone to bed and I can go and check in on that and see how they're doing and say hi. Um, You can do that. That doesn't just have to be textual, you know, posts and words on a screen. It can be video. It can be audio. You can can get creative. People would leave an audio sign off after their after their shift or after their their project that they're working on to say hi to the whole team you know be be creative and playful in how you approach this as well asynchronous engagement you know is sort of you know is the core of the web it, it was it's how we used to do it most of the time back in the day and of course we've shifted to a much more co-presence centered synchronous sort of centric culture with you know live streams and and videos and things like that and everything is sort of of the now real time right now that's fantastic, but let's not forget the asynchronousness. It's the thing that is most commonly present that I've seen that makes the difference in these cultures and in these environments when they're working successfully, even those that are in the same time zone. You know, they're busy. They've got different things happening at different parts of the day. They can't all be online at the same time, and that's a big ask for them to do that on a consistent basis. So you've got to create those spaces where they don't do that. I have a client who you know uses Facebook Workplace as their primary online work workspace and they've got you know there's every now and then there's synchronous things that happen in the team they're largely in the same time zone but 99% of it is asynchronous it's people checking in you know there's groups in there for sociality there's groups for you know learning and challenging one another there's groups for working out loud there's sections of that of that village that they've built out that allow them to step in whenever they need it, whenever they feel like it, whenever they're able to do it and still participate in the community. So you're not restricting participation or contribution by saying you've got to be here at the same time. 
Yeah, I love that answer. What are some tools that can help kind of facilitate like async collaboration in your experience? Uh, good question. Yeah, um, I'm probably, I'm, uh, I haven't had a second coffee, so I might struggle to list a great list of tools for you. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think, look, any, a lot of, you know, the, the best intranet platforms, the best community platforms are all really good at this, you know, um, you know, the, the, I know it's sort of old tech at this point, but it's still around for a reason, you know, no one's really bested it yet. Forum style technology, where you have a, a place to have an in public discussion, threaded comments, you can organize them, you can move them around, you can, you know, make sense of that information together in a public space. Are fantastic at this. They are the best. So, you know, so Facebook Workplace is, you know, a forum style model in terms of their threaded comments and things like that. Um, any kind of, you know, structure where you can actually sort of have a sticky place where you can go to on a consistent basis and you can search that space as well. Also really important um, to find the conversations you need, you know, if that's going to be building up over time or there's a lot of people in your organisation, those sort of tools are really critical. Um, I've seen a few folks invest in uh, sort of intranet tools that are a little bit more like social media feeds. So they're, you know, they're very dynamic, but they're very ambient and they're not very sticky. And it makes it really challenging for these asynchronous conversations to occur because it's hard to sort of go back. It's hard to return to the conversation and say, oh, I was really having a great conversation with that person or where was that thing where people were sharing that? I'd like to share my my take on that as well. Oh, I can't find it. It's too hard. I've got to scroll forever. Never mind. So you've got to make sure you've got some sticky zones in your village. Um, but honestly, just about any tool where people can post, contribute, get something on the digital page um, of any media format, frankly, you know, again, text, video, audio, whatever it is, and that can be there persistently and discoverably. Um, I've seen somebody hack this with a Google Doc. So, it, you know, it doesn't even need to be tremendously sophisticated. Um, I have a, a group that I worked with in China who were, um, who were, uh, they were actually getting through um, the recent flooding that was happening in some of their cities over there. Really massive issue um, you know community had very limited access to technology still had their phones and still had access to you know to google docs and things like that but they did not have um you know fancy tools at their disposal but they threw together an impromptu community and they were using it to do asynchronous communication through the crisis to share who had what resources who needed what kind of make a community notice board effectively and that built up over time and now it's actually become this amazing artifact that sort of tells the story of what happened and how people came together and shared this and it's in a very rudimentary you know shared document situation so Honestly, just about any tool is great for this. You know, um, some of the really great collaborative tools out there like Mural are really fantastic at this. You know, they really let you build build not just sort of textual asynchronous exchanges over time, but, you know, rich media um, kind of tools that are really good for collaborating and ideating over time. Again, that does not have to happen synchronously. You can have a sort of creative sandpit sitting on a tool like Mural, uh, you know, and kind of go and people can contribute to that and throw something up on the board or add a link, add an image, add a video, sketch something, you know, kind of throw into that creative sandpit on an ongoing basis. So I genuinely believe that just about any tool, any tool that's going to let people contribute over time and will be sticky and discoverable and, you know, can be public or semi-public is applicable to this and you can make that work for your situation. 
I love that answer and just the example of how a simple Google Doc can turn into a community building initiative. Um, it's like super powerful. I feel like a lot of community builders that I think both of us know as well kind of get caught up in the, oh, what platform should I use and what tools do I need? When the reality is, I, th I think you would probably agree that it's more about kind of what is kind of the culture and the philosophy and the mission behind the community. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Why are people there? How are they, you know, how are they engaging? Why are they engaging? How are they free to express, express themselves and kind of configure their identity in relation to the purpose of the community? All those sort of things. And look, there are some great community platforms that let you do some really cool things. And, you know, obviously we talked earlier about automation, you know, a Google Doc's not going to let you do those sort of more sophisticated things, of course, but it just depends on where you're at. And I think, yeah, it's important to bust the myth that you, you need the fan fanciest important to bust the myth that you need the fanciest tools to do this work you definitely don't it's about the human beings it's about intentionality how are you showing up are you creating a psychologically safe space for your people to engage are you creating those pathways for engagement that we talked about those mechanisms for engagement are they do they genuinely have agency to do that or are you in a sort of a more of a surveilling mindset, which might, which will invariably make them less comfortable, less relaxed, not psychologically safe, you know, and, do the, and that is a real, uh, an issue in terms of, of remote working and some of these situations, there are still a lot of folks who are learning to let go of control and on that journey, which can be very confronting for some people, you know, they do fall into or lapse into surveilling kind of behaviours or micro-surveilling behaviours, which undermine trust and undermine psychological safety. So, and they do, they are not positive culture generators. You know, people are going to react accordingly. They're going to shy away. They're not going to bring them their full selves. They're either only going to do what they, they're said, they, they're told, um, or they're, they're not going to do much of anything because they feel, you know, unvalued, unseen, that they can't, you know, that their participation doesn't matter. So you've got to prove to people through your actions and through your commitment to genuine relationship building their contribution does matter make it count it's not enough to say it you have to actually invest in it over time I have another client who's just started to do this work who is um uh it sounds very simple but who's just taking the time to um ensure that everybody on the team is seen so she's a team of high performers who you know uh, Oh, you know, massively overperforming online. You know, we're, we're in a physical office as well and they're even more overperforming online. So there's absolutely no issues in terms of performance and things like that. They don't have those zones yet either. They don't have those opportunities for shared engagement. So there's not really a sense of cohesion in the team or shared culture, even though everyone individually, is, it seems fine. They're very self-sufficient. They're doing their work brilliantly. But she went and checked in with one of them in a meeting and sort of said, oh, look, how are you doing? Like, well, you know, never mind work from it. It's just, how are you doing? You know, just a human chat. And they said, oh, look, to be honest, you know, like I like my job and I, I do my thing, but yeah, I kind of, there are days where, because I don't really hear from anybody and, you know, I, I guess, you know, I guess I'm doing good work because you'd probably tell me if I wasn't and I guess that's a good thing, but so it's sort of the nothing's broke so I don't hear from anyone syndrome. Um, you really got to flip that on its head, you know? Um, and she said, look, just even just this conversation is kind of changing my whole approach to the day. And I feel much more invigorated and much more connected. I don't really feel sane, to be honest. I don't, and I don't always know if I'm valued, even though I feel like you'd probably tell me if I wasn't. Uh, and she didn't really realize how, how 
this individual was feeling and turns out most most of them were feeling that way so she is now flipping this on her head and rather than sort of talking to people when there's an issue or when you really need to get people together for something she's making it about that's the intention setting she's starting days you know regardless of time zone and sort of find she's going in there proactively as a leader and doing individual check-ins and just catching people up on things and directing them to the new tools and the new zones that she and I are building out together and making sure that they're comfortable, that they're invited on this journey together, that they know that they're seen, they're valued, and that participation does matter. And that is building that confidence and that trust and that internal social capital. And it's already starting to make a difference for her. Yeah, that's such a great and powerful example. Um, on the flip side of that is, what would be your approach to maybe a manager or you know, a senior level executive who maybe is in the mindset that they should be using, like, for example, employee monitoring software that has, you know, a camera that turns on and requires people to check in every X number of minutes or hours or whatnot. How, what are some of the approaches that you can go with them to those folks to be like, hey, maybe this isn't the best way to foster a great remote culture and build trust in, you know, a sense of community within the organization? Yeah, look, it's 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 hard because I, my honest reaction is to yeah throw my I wouldn't do this in front of them obviously, but my honest reaction is to throw my hands in the air and say, "What are you doing?" <laughs> um, you know, it's it, I mean, and again, you need to find a diplomatic way of explaining to them that that is about them, not about their employees. <laughs> um, you know, again, I think I do try to approach it sympathetically. So. Again, you know, just chatting with someone like yourself, who you know, you, you understand the benefits of, of working remotely and the opportunities that that, that creates, as well as the, the challenges, of course, and the limitations. Uh, but and you, and we all we've all the data is out there, right? In terms of uh, you know, remote work being actually you know t- tends to be far more productive. You know, there is not a people sitting at home doing nothing problem. It's if actually the opposite of oh wow, we need to get better at drawing the boundaries of safety of saying you can log off here. You know, you are you're off the clock. How do we support you in your home environment to disconnect and to, you know, create these separate spaces so you're not feeling like you have to work all the time and we're adding to that problem. So uh you know data helps <laughs> so it doesn't help all the time but I guess gathering that data I just talked about um, key data points in the love language of that individual in a way that's going to resonate with them and saying look you know there the data is here to you know if, if that is the issue if they're worried about what are they slacking off and they're not going to do their work you can say look there is no evidence for this you know globally this is this is actually not a problem it's not um, I, I understand how you might feel that way and it might be something you worry about but Rest assured, smart people, people just like you have investigated this and they've found out that it's not a problem. It's not a problem in the way you think it is. The problem is actually the opposite. And then you can have a conversation about that. I try to approach it compassionately. So whilst sometimes I might want to, you know, put up my fisticuffs and sort of say, what are you doing? It's so predatory and creepy and (laughs) non-human to want to surveil people in that way. Um, You know, try to get to the why. So really try to understand why that person feels that's necessary you know have they just have they been told that from a thought leader they respect Uh, you know are they reading blogs from you know employee monitoring software companies who are telling them why that's a really good idea and can you bust those myths and sort of unpack why that might be not a good idea as you say you know is it an insecurity which it often is is it about their nervousness about lack of control often you know I mean COVID has created, you know, kind of a global existential crisis in in a whole bunch of ways. And 
one big one of that is around our work and our relationship to what we do for a living and how we spend our time. And, you know, for a lot of people, even though you and I know work is not a place, for a lot of people, work was a place. They were taught and they were told and they had come to understand that work is a built environment that I go and spend time in. Work is me showing up and telling my team what to do. Work is, you know, me having to go to these meetings and do these things. And that's why I have worth as a person and how I make, you know, how I make sense of this world. The problem's kind of in the paradigm, right? And that's obviously we can't solve that easily, you and I as individuals, but we can contribute to hopefully solving it. They are caught up in a culture of work, a macro culture of work that is at this point, practically two centuries old, you know, uh, that that sort of industrial age world of reducing humans to component parts, you know, obsessing over um, kind of productivity at the expense of all else, um, you know, dehumanising, disconnecting people from their work product, all this sort of stuff. It's damaging, it's harmful, and it's antiquated. And it is not flexible, and it's not resilient, and it is no way to meet the challenges of the 21st century. And again, there is data and research to support this, that this is not the right model for a highly volatile 21st century where change is constant. And in addition to just work and technology change, we'll be dealing with you know, climate crises, pandemic crises, and all sorts of other challenges this this decade and this century is going to throw at us. So they need to adjust or they'll be the ones, you know, who ultimately will find themselves sort of outmoded and left behind. So look at it as an opportunity to help them adjust, <laughs> try to figure out what their true worry is. Is it that they're feeling like, because, and I've often found this, it comes down to somebody feeling like, well, how do I have value now? How do I, am, 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 do I count if I, like, I've got it. That's my job is to surveil these people because that's what the systems taught them is their job. So give them an opportunity to grow out of that. Show them how. Give them a pathway. Connect them with the data. Um, do the best you can. And look, some people don't want to change. They're really immovable. And they may be the people who are left behind ultimately, despite your very best efforts. Um, but I have found that a compassionate stance rather than sort of a, an aggressive, you know, finger waggy, why are you doing this? It's the wrong approach way is, is always better. And showing them those data points, explaining to them why that old model is not only not, you know, is harmful for humans in a whole bunch of ways, won't get them to the results they want to see, and actually is a really kind of a bad way, an unsuccessful way, an unsustainable way to meet the challenges of their, that their business has. You know, their business is going to, you know, there's some fantastic data out there to show, you know, that businesses with non-hierarchical models that, you know, do a sort of do a trust and track approach versus command and control. They are way more resilient. They weather change and crises so much more effectively. So, you know, show them that sort of stuff and say, look, the next time something really challenging happens outside of your control, if you're adopting these methods, you're going to get through it probably much more successfully than you are right now where, you know, you're going to be hyper surveilling people and giving yourself a nervous breakdown. That is such a well thought out um, approach and answer. Um, that I almost don't want to shift gears to kind of another question <laughs> that I had, which was um, for like remote community builders, whether that's internal or external, do you think introverts or extroverts are better suited for that? Ooh, controversial. I love it. <laughs> uh, oh, such a good question. Honestly, I've seen both do a great job and I'd, I'd hate to give a fence sitting answer, but uh, I wouldn't want to pick 
if you made me pick, if I, it was life or death and you said, you got to pick one, Vanessa, sorry, I would probably say introverts. Uh, in my personal experience, building communities myself, working with amazing community builders within companies, for companies, for all sorts of organisations over time, the most consistently excellent community builders online that I've, I've met and worked with or hired in some cases have been introverts or, you know, a hybrid. Um, I myself am a bit of a hybrid. I probably sound like a bit of an extrovert, but I am, you know, I have intro, introvert qualities in that I will, being social, I enjoy, but it takes a lot out of me and I'll need some time to reboot and recover. Uh, so it, it, something about the introvert personality does seem to lend itself to, uh, I guess, be, you know, the, the observational and sort of armchair anthropological qualities that a good community manager uh, often has uh, where they are, you know, they need to embed, they take that ethnographic mindset, they need to, to watch what's going on, they need to pay careful attention to behaviours, they need to quietly and gently intervene, soft power at all times, right? Um extroverts uh, may accidentally make it all about them, not because they have an ego and they're trying to make it all about them, but they might because of their energy and they can become a centre of gravity in a community. And that's not a great thing. You know, it should never be about the community manager. It should never be about that personality. Um, and that's some of the challenges that you know, founders who are building communities have as well. But by, by nature of the, their relationship to the organisation, they, they are a natural centre of gravity. And then the community can be really destabilised if they leave or move on or hand over those responsibilities to someone else. So you've got to always be thinking, you know, it's a servant leader mindset. Um, it's a true, you know, how do I serve my constituents mindset? Am I taking a backseat here, a, a sort of big picture to look at what's happening, to think about the functional, social and cultural health of the community? Am I doing all of these things? And for whatever reason, that is often easier for introverts. So if you made me pick, I'd say introverts. But honestly, I've seen both do a great job. Good answer. Um, I have a couple of lightning round questions that I like to ask everyone who's been on the show. Cool, um, go for it. First and, for, uh, first and foremost, if you were to win $10 million Australian dollars tomorrow, what would you spend <laughs> it on? Oh, my goodness. I love this question. <laughs> and I must say, I think about this. Um, I would... Um, honestly, I would go and buy a, a homestead in New Zealand, <clears throat> excuse me, which is something I'm, I'm hoping to do anyway. So I would go and do that because I had the money. That would not cost $10 million. That would cost you know, maybe $1 million at most. Um, and then I would, I would think really carefully about how to go and invest that money. So I would, oh, I would go and do some really kind of weird cultural hacky things. Like um, my husband and I were talking about this the other day. We would, this is a really weird example. We would go and find really cool social activists and change makers and pay for them to attend things like the Met Gala so they can get on the cultural radar, <laughs> you know, dress them, make them look amazing, go send them out and get interviewed. And people go, who's that? What's, what are they all about? We would help raise the vis visibility of amazing people doing amazing things for amazing causes. Um, and of course, uh, yeah, I would give a lot to um, people trying to rebuild things and do things differently. So there's a lot of, for example, decentralized web projects that I'd be keen to invest in. Um, a lot of great charities, anything to do with, you know, helping combat climate change and also investing in First Nations, um, which, you know, in, in so many ways, you know, all the stuff we're talking about, this is core knowledge for them and has been for, for you know, centuries. Um, and we are not reinventing the wheel. So I would look to try and apply my money as a superpower 
to raise those voices in creative and innovative ways. Love it. And if you could have coffee with any historical figure, who would you choose? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So many. <laughs> I often joke about wanting to, wanting to have a time machine and I've got like a, in my head, rather than a bucket list, I have a time travel tourism list where I'm like, I would go to that. I would do that. And then there's weird things on it. Like I would go and, you know, put myself in the thriller video for Michael Jackson. Cause I just want to be a zombie in that. Um, <laughs> um who would I have coffee with? Oh my goodness gracious. Uh, look, I'm not an especially religious person, but I think it'd be uh, amazing to go and have coffee with uh, a, re- a, a religious uh, figure historically like Jesus or Muhammad or someone like that and go and try to, you know, someone whose ideas have persisted for thousands and thousands of years and have been taken on um, in, in weaponized, but also taken on in really beautiful and constructive ways and ask them about that philosophy and see where it started and see what they were really about, see what the truth of all of that was. I think that could be really interesting. Yeah, that's a really great answer. Um, well, it was a really, really great chatting with you. Where can listeners find you online? Oh, thanks, Jess. It was awesome talking to you as well. I had a ball. Um, they can find me. Um, my main social platform, I guess, is probably Twitter. Uh, don't really do Facebook these days. Twitter, I'm at my name. So I'm at Vanessa Paik, V-E-N-E-S-S-A-P-A-E-C-H. And my website, same thing, www.vanessapake.com. Also on LinkedIn and really happy to connect with anyone that wants to talk more about any of these things we've been discussing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jess. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights.